Well, good morning. I would ask that you would take God's Word into your hand and open to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Thank you, Chuck, for that prayer. We need it. And uh, it is a pleasure to serve. I know I can speak for the elders that it's been a pleasure to serve you as a body. We look forward to many years of serving you and uh, helping you in whatever way possible to equip the saints for the works of service. So uh, thank you, Chuck, for those kind words and prayer. Uh, just so you know, our tradition here at Village Bible Church is not to pass an offering plate. And we would ask that you would, uh, uh, if you're a regular attender or a member of this church, that you would uh, uh, place your tithes and offerings in the four back boxes uh, at the back end of the sanctuary. Uh, we do that between us and God. And if you're a visitor, uh, just uh, enjoy and be blessed by the service that uh, uh, we are providing this morning for you. So Romans chapter 1. Last week, we started a series, Keith got us started out, on a series that we've entitled The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. How many have ever seen that Western movie, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly? A lot of men rose their hands, not many ladies, not a big surprise. The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Someone came up last week and says, now, why did you entitle the series The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly? Well, in uh, uh, Romans chapter 1, thank you very much. I am struggling with some asthma right now, so thank you. I needed that. Romans chapter 1 starts out verses 1 through 17, and it gives us a picture of the good. We're going to be talking for the next four or five weeks. I'm going to be leading us through a picture of what Paul is talking about at the church in Rome. And it's all good. It's all good. He talks about who he is in Christ. He talks about the gospel of God. And at the end, in uh, verse 17, he says that the righteous will live by faith. It's all good. As one of my uh, friends says, it's A.G., all good. But then things turn like a summer storm rolling up on the horizon. Things start to turn bad. In verses 18 through 25, it goes from good to bad. And it talks about man's rebellion against God. And you would think right when it gets uh, pretty bad, just like a bad storm, it gets ugly. Because in verses 25 through 31, Paul begins in great um, specifics to talk about man's rebellion and his depravity towards a holy God. So for the fall, we are going to be looking at the good, the bad, and the ugly of Romans chapter 1. So what I want to do is I want to read Romans 1, and then I want to ask for God's blessing in our time in His Word this morning. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Let's ask God's blessing this morning. Father God, we open your word. Your word is living and active. It's able to change our lives. And Lord, that's why we're here today. We need to be changed. So, Father, I pray your blessing upon me, your servant, who will lay forth your word this morning, that it will glorify you in all that we say and do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I began to think about what I would talk about, 
I saw that uh, Keith only got through halfway through the verse, and I said, you know what, we need to finish up verse 1. So I began to think, what might I talk about from the same verse that Keith was talking about? And a question came to mind. As I looked at Romans, I saw an answer to the question that was in my mind. And the question is, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? You know, our world is full of definitions. And it's sad because these definitions have become convoluted in our politically correct world. We don't many times know what words mean anymore because they have lost their meaning. They've lost their uh, preciseness of their definition. So I went to the place where you get a precise definition. I went to Webster's Dictionary and I looked under the phrase or the word Christian. This is what Webster defines it as. One who professes belief in the teachings of Jesus Christ. One who professes belief in the teachings of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but that uh, leaves me uh, a little flat. It leaves me uh, wanting some more. Is that who we are as Christians as we gather into this place this morning? Are we just people who profess belief in Jesus Christ? Is that what marks us as a Christian? It seems like there should be more to that. Well, maybe it's because of that definition that Barna, the Barna study group says that to, uh, in the year 2006, there were 101 million people in America who professed to be a born again Christian. 101 million people. In fact, just a month and a half ago, Barna came out with yet another study asking the same question. And they found out for the first time in a long time that 50 percent of all American adults profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. One hundred and twelve million people. That's a lot. And who can who can debate those numbers? I drive down the Eisenhower Expressway and all I see are emblems of Ford, Toyota, Subaru, a Chevy and all the different makes and models. But something is very common. I see all those little fishes on the back of those cars. A lot of them. I go and I walk around the shopping centers and I see crosses on, on young people's necks and I see WWJD bracelets on their arms and I sit there and say, they must be Christians, they must profess a belief in Christ. Then I begin to look and in the newspaper, the Chicago Tribune, just a couple of weeks ago, they were speaking and advertising about the nation's largest business leadership convention that was going on. Of the seven speakers that were going to be speaking that day in keynote addresses, Donald Trump was one. The uh, three of them were pastors. And I began to look and say, we're mainstream. Even the business world wants to hear what Jesus has to say about what's going on in our world. Then I began to look at all the Christian books that are sold. In the last three years, we've had more than a dozen books of a Christian theme or nature on the New York Times bestseller, selling millions upon millions of copies. People are hungry to read about Christianity. Then I began to think about television. The Trinity Broadcasting Network, TBN, boasts revenues yearly of more than $190 million. People are giving to Christian ministry. That must be a part of that 112 million people. How about Christian radio? 
According to Arbitron, which is one of the uh, radio um, groups that figures out who's where and what's involved with who's, wh- what people are listening to, Arbitron says in the Chicagoland area, the number one genre represented by more stations is the Christian uh, theme of radio. Meaning that there is more Christian radio on our dials in the Chicagoland area than there's country music, talk radio, that there's more than uh, rock and roll or rap or whatever kind of genre you can think of. Christian radio is the number one genre in it. Of course, there's 112 million adults in America. They need to listen to some radio station. So they must be right. We live in a, a, a nation of Christians. And that... In America, the Christian way is A-OK. Things are good. The movement of Christ is strong. But sadly, my friends, I'm not as optimistic about the state of affairs when it comes to America and Christianity. I look at the decline of morals in our society. I look at the Christian witness that is being silenced in our nation. I look at how Christians hold back and, and don't say, if, if we're half of the group, we're a majority because the other half is going to think a whole myriad of different ways. And if we're 50%, then we should be the leading voice of any conversation, whether in the workplace or in the schools or in the neighborhood. We're the majority. But sadly, I don't believe that to be true. So where's the disconnect? The disconnect is, first of all, I think that definition that Webster gives is a little uh, lighter than I would like it to be. And not only that, but we who profess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord are not living what we profess. My dad used to say, your walk better match your talk. And that ain't happening within Christianity. It seems that when we look at Romans chapter 1, I'll tell you with great um, fear today, I try to apply 21st century Christianity to 1st century Christianity where Paul's at. And I'll tell you, it is impossible to do. Paul lived in a time of great persecution. He lived in a time that you get baptized, you were set aside and ostracized by your family and your friends. You may lose your job, you may lose your home. And when we baptize people, we do it and people are clapping and they're all excited. When they did that, there wasn't that kind of fanfare going on because one of the main chief concerns was, what is the opposition going to do to me now that I profess to be Christ? We find ourselves as Christians uh, living selfish lives. We find ourselves worrying about us. We're not worried about Christ. Paul says, I'm a servant, which I'll talk about in a moment. We don't talk like that. We don't call ourselves bond servants. We come to a church and we say, what's, it, what's in it for me? How are you going to take care of me? What are you going to do for my family? How are you going to take care of this? How are you going to take care of that? Me, me, me. A great country theologian named Toby Keith said this. I want to talk about me. I want to talk about I. I want to talk about number one. My, oh, my. That's American Christianity. And I will tell you that just because we profess something with our mouth does not mean that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior in our lives. So something's wrong. And what's happened is it's worse than just having a group of people that say, feed me, take care of me, praise me, uh, affirm me. And this last week I was uh, watching, uh, or I was on, I'm a YouTube addict. You're going to see a YouTube video here in about a minute. I'm a YouTube addict. And one of the ones was uh, me worship. 
me worship, all these worship CDs that come out, and, and it's this guy on a piano singing all the great songs of worship, but it's not worship to God, it's worship to self. One of them is, instead of it's all about you, he goes, it's all about me, and nothing else matters, it's only about me. And he goes on, and song after song, he's replaced God with self. And you say, well, we don't do that. I want you to watch for a moment. The guys are going to throw a video on here. Pray a quick prayer. We've had trouble with our audiovisual lately. Pray that it'll come on. And we're going to watch it. And uh, then I'll get into Romans 1. We can't even have one? You've got to be kidding me. This place is a joke. 
worship band would tell your worship band to praise off. Mega Christ Church Welcome to First Trinity Unity Community Church of the United States. How can we feed you today? Who's teaching? Pastor Wilkes. No, I'm not so crazy about him. Oh, I, I meant uh, Pastor Johnson, of course. Sorry for the mix-up. That's more like it. Now look, I don't want any of that Old Testament business today. I want to focus on the New Testament. Well, of course, sir. The Old Testament God is me. I mean, he is a lot happier now, so let's focus on the present. Certainly. I want some creative illustrations. I want to laugh a little bit, but not too much. I want my communion crackers broken for me with 100% with 100% natural grape juice. I know that stuff last week from Ken. You think that's honoring to God? No, sir. Of course not. I didn't think so. And I want to feel encouraged and uplifted and affirmed this week. And look, I want some healing for my bunion. And... I don't want to be challenged too much, just a little bit, okay? Because I'm challenged enough during work. Certainly. This is a safe place. A happy place. I'd be a lot happier if you had, if you had something in the fifth row or so. Certainly. That's what I'm talking about. Have a blessed day. First Trinity Unity Community Church of the United States. We get your order right the first time, every time, all the time, and on time, until the end of time. How can we feed you today? There's more of that going on than we would ever, ever want to admit. You know, the Apostle Paul would be greatly grieved if that's the church that he was writing to when he wrote the book of Romans. You know, in one short verse, he gives three key attributes of what must be evident in the life of a Christian. And it's something that we need to be ready to hear. We need to understand that when we talk about being a Christian, the New Testament continually challenges us not to think that just because we've confessed Christ with our mouth, that we can rest on our laurels and, uh, and expect blessing and assurance of that salvation. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. Be eager to make that calling and election sure. In 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says this, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? What's the test? Paul lines it out for us in Romans chapter 1. The first thing we see in our outline this morning is a Christian is one who serves the master in heaven. One who serves the master in heaven. Paul, as Keith told us last week, speaks about the idea of being a bondservant. He says, I, Paul, a bondservant, a servant of Christ Jesus. Let us never forget that. We are slaves to Christ. We are told in the New Testament that we can be a slave of one thing or the other. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, I can be a slave to sin and disobedience which leads to death, or I can be a slave to Christ and righteousness. There's no middle ground. There's no other options. Either you're a slave to yourself in sin or you're a slave to Christ. Paul says if we call ourselves Christians, we are slaves to Christ. I want you to look to the person next to you. I want you to say, I'm a slave of Christ. That was kind of pathetic. 
I'm a slave of Don't tell anybody I'm a slave of Christ. You guys will get it better next time. We don't have many Baptists in the room, I guess. We are slaves to Jesus Christ. That's something we don't hear about. We don't talk about that in our Christian ideology these days. We talk about who we are. We talk about our name tags. We talk about what we do in the church. We don't talk about being a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Paul says, if you're going to do that, you have to be a servant. You're going to say you belong to Christ. You need to be a servant. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, turn, if you will, from Romans 1 for a second to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're in Romans, you're just going to go to your right, I believe, one book over to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to look at verse 1. Paul explains this idea of being a bondservant. He's speaking about what it means to be an apostle. He's speaking about his apostleship to Christ. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 4.1. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the secret things of God. He says they're servants of Christ. It's not the word doulos, which Keith talked about last week. It is the Greek word, which I will butcher, huporestes. Huporestus. And what that literally means is it's a boating term. And, and we don't use this word very often. If you remember any kind of illustration back to the days of the Vikings or some medieval time of boating, if you were to see a ship in that day, you would see maybe one sail, but then you would see a whole bunch of oars coming out of the bottom of the boat right above the water level. And what they called those men were the under row men, not the Roman as in Romans, but row, row your boat, men. What Paul is saying is, I want you to regard me as an under Roman, the one in the bottom of the boat who's going, oh, we, oh, oh, oh. He's rowing the boat. He's working. He's not seen. He's not at the helm telling the ship where to go. He's underneath doing the work so the boat will get where it needs to be. Paul says, I am a servant. In Romans 1, he says, I'm a doulos. In Romans, I'm sorry, in 1 Corinthians 4, he says, I'm an under Roman. We, we don't speak that way in our world today. But Paul knew his place. A great wrestling theologian once said, you must know your role. Far too many Christians have defined who they are in Christ instead of allowing Jesus to affirm a job description and a place for them in their own lives. Paul knew his place. Do you know yours this morning? He says, I'm a servant. Now, we know that the Bible talks about this idea of being a servant on numerous occasions. Uh, I believe at least two or three occasions in the New Testament, there would be a dispute that would break out between uh, the disciples. Disciples always want to know who is the greatest, who's the greatest. One time, in fact, James and John's mom goes up to Jesus, pulls on his robe a little bit and says, Jesus, can I talk to you for a moment? When you get to your kingdom in heaven, will you remember my two sons and allow one to sit on your right hand and one to sit on your left? That's a bold woman. And what does Jesus say? He brings them together in Mark 10:45, and he says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their high officials exercise authority, but not so with you. If you want to be great among the others, then you must be a servant. Whoever wants to be first must first be a slave of all. Now listen why we are to do this. Why should we have to do this, Jesus? Why are you calling us to this servant lifestyle? Because he says in verse 45, For even 
Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give himself up as a ransom for many. Why are we to live a life of service? We're to live a life of service because that's what our master did. And if we call ourselves and we profess the teachings of Christ, then we are going to serve our master in the way that he has called us to serve and to follow his example. Now, it involves three things. In your outline, you're going to see three things this morning. This service, first of all, should remind us of our partnership. It should remind us of our partnership. When Paul says, I am a servant of Jesus Christ, he's reminding the Romans about something. And what that is, is that we all are servants to Christ Jesus. Every one of us. Paul doesn't say, hey, I, Paul, MVP of this new church, all-star apostle of this new church. He doesn't say, oh, by the way, Dr. Paul, call me Paul, Ph.D. He doesn't say anything about that. Now, he's going to speak about being an apostle later. That's his job and responsibility. That's nothing of notoriety to him when it comes to puffing himself up. Paul says, I am a servant of Christ Jesus. There are no MVPs in the church of Jesus Christ. Never forget that. There are no MVPs. We are a body. I'm one part. You're another part. We form a part. And the only MVP in this place is Jesus Christ. And the moment that spotlight comes off of Jesus Christ, we cease to be a church. We become a group of people following one all-star or a group of all-stars instead of following our leader, Jesus Christ. Paul says, I'm a servant. And as he's writing to the Romans, he says, hey, let us never forget, we are servants. You call yourself a Christian, then your number one job is to be a servant. Our Father, our uh, Christ in heaven left everything that he had, and he could have expected all kinds of fanfare and all kinds of love and gifts to be given to him, but he came and he served, no matter the consequences that he was facing. It involves a partnership. We serve together. No matter our titles, whether you're an elder, whether you're a deacon, whether you're a small group leader, whether you help park cars outside, hand out bulletins, whether you work in the nursery, it doesn't matter. We're all slaves to Jesus Christ. There's a second thing we see. Not only are we partners, but it identifies our purpose. What does a servant do? Someone tell me, what does a servant do? Serves. A servant serves. What is our job as Christians? To serve. Our purpose is to do nothing more than to serve Christ. Why? Because that brings glory to God. We serve Christ because that is, in, in fact, giving glory to God in heaven. But before you think that all you have to do is just kind of say, you know, I, I'm going to serve for a little while. I'll serve as a small group leader this year, but next year I won't do it. Or I'll, I'll serve in the nursery for six weeks, but as soon as that six weeks is done, I'm out of here. What Paul is saying is this service is lifelong. We're going to see that in a moment because he is set apart for a lifetime. This is a purpose that God has given us. Now, as Christians, when we uh, are saved by grace through faith, and it's not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works that any of us can boast. Please understand, salvation is a free gift of God. But Paul tells the church at Ephesus, he says, it's not just about uh, doing that. But something must come as an outpouring of that relationship that you receive by grace. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, a verse later, he says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ to do good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. 
God, if you are a child of God today, God has works prepared in advance for you to do. They're not works that will save you. You're already saved. But it's like when I uh, yesterday I was performing a wedding and I was telling the, the couple that I was marrying, I said, OK, you have professed your love for one another. You profess that you love each other in a, in a group of hundreds of people. Now do something about it. When we profess Christ, that's not the end. Now we do something about it. What we do. God has given us so much. God has taken us from death and brought us into life. God has forgiven us of all our sins and cleansed us of all unrighteousness. What are we to do with that? We are to serve out of gratitude and say, Lord, there's nothing about me that's my own. It's all you. It's all about you. And I will do everything in my power to serve you until the last day that you take me home. That's our purpose. But look at what else it brings. It brings in a priority. Brings in a priority. Paul says, if I'm a servant, who do I serve? Paul doesn't just say, I, Paul, a servant. Because that would bring open up opportunities for people to say, well, who was Paul a servant of? Paul could have said, if he would have just said in Romans 1, I, Paul, a servant. One of the Romans could have said, well, then why don't you come over and work at my house, servant? Or maybe the church would say, hey, Paul, come and serve us. Or maybe someone would say, hey, come and serve me. Make me some food. Paul doesn't say that. He doesn't just say, I'm a servant of anyone. He says, I am a servant of Christ Jesus. Great importance there. Don't let us forget that because that builds our priority. There are many things in this world that we're called to. There are many things that we have obligation to be a part of. Tomorrow morning, many of you will get up, you'll put your clothes on, and you will go out and you will do an obligated job that you've been called to do. But that is not your priority. Your priority as a Christian, Paul says, is I am a servant, not of my boss, not of the principal, sorry, Phil, not of the principal at school or the teacher, but I am a servant of Christ Jesus. And what Paul is saying is Rome lets you all understand and know, first and foremost, I serve Jesus. I don't serve anyone else. Jesus is number one. And we need to remember that as a church, because when we deal with people that are looking for churches in their kind of desire, and this is what I'm looking for, here's my list of things, what can you do for me today? We need to make sure as a church, we don't fall prey to that. I was just watching, um, I was on a website of a, a large church in the, Florida, in the state of Florida, and they were giving away a Hummer this weekend for someone who would bring the most friends to church. Um, Ray has the Hummer outside and, uh, we're going to go ahead and count your visitors this morning. Is that why, is that what we do church for? To give away gifts, gimmicks? Is that what the gospel is all about? I'm going to bring friends for the chance to increase my possibility of getting the Hummer. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. But it's even more subtle than that. We, you know, we use those kinds of pictures and we laugh. We say, what kind of church is that? Well, we do that in our own lives. Because what we begin to do is start serving the needs of, of, of the felt needs of people instead of serving Jesus Christ. I can fall prey to falling to serve 
affirmation from the body in the area of preaching. That people say, well, why don't you preach this? Or why don't you preach that? Or, or don't go so heavy on this. Or go lighter on this. Or the one I like the most. Maybe shorten your messages. I'm not going to shorten my messages, all right? Get another preacher and then we'll go from there. Messages where they're going to be. I could serve that. But if I'm right where God wants me to be, and the uh, uh, elders affirm that and say, we believe that's where God's calling you, then we're going to go that direction. Instead of serving the felt needs of people. And there's a lot of people, because of our democratic style of government, we have this idea that everybody has a vote. One person has a vote. His name is Jesus Christ, and his vote is the only vote, and it cannot be vetoed. Let us never forget that. There's no other vote. It's Jesus Christ. We are his servants. A priority, Paul says, I serve God first. Who are you serving in your ministry today? Who are you serving in your home? Who are you serving in your church? Who are you serving in your workplace? Is it the boss? Is it your husband? Is it your kids? Is it the bottom line? Whoever you're serving, if it's not Christ, then you're serving in vain and you are a slave to those things because Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. Either you'll love one or you'll hate the, and you'll hate the other. You can't serve both. Jesus says we need to be a slave to him. Paul says, and he says it numerous times through his writings, he says, I am going to serve God. A couple of years ago, I preached a message out of 2 Timothy, and it was entitled, Living for an Audience of One. You know, we as a church, as we continue to grow and God continues to bless us, if we begin to just become a popular place to hang out, if we come to a place that's just great with visitors and, and we make sure all our ministries are top notch and, and everything's okay, and if we make sure that our buildings are first rate and the programs we do are wonderful, if that's all we do and we fill this place and God is not happy, folks, we should close up the doors because we have forgotten what we were called to do. And all we've become is a glorified religious community center that is doing some pretty neat things. And it may impact some people's lives because programs and things do that. They get people excited. But if we're not serving that audience of one, Jesus Christ, and we're in trouble. Village, remember this. Whenever, whatever we do, always look to heaven and see if God is standing up and saying, I am proud of that. Look, angels, look at what my servants are doing. Amen to that. Because there's a lot of people who affirm a lot of stuff, and you'll get crowds of people that will clap and applaud what you're doing. But if Jesus isn't doing it, you might as well quit. Or go do it in a public or secular setting because it's not Christianity as Paul declares it. Paul says, I, Paul, am a servant of Christ Jesus. Let's move on. He goes on and he says the second phase of what is going on when it comes to uh, being a Christian. A Christian then is one who is sent... On a mission as a herald. Once Paul has declared that he's a servant, he moves on. And what does he declare? He says, I'm an apostle. Now, Paul says that there's this office. Now, the Lord had appointed men to be apostles, and he's one of them. Within those words comes a wealth of understanding called to be an apostle. The first thing we see about this word is that this mission involves God calling you. This mission involves God calling you. When Paul says called to be an apostle, what he's not saying is one day I was in uh, Jerusalem hanging out with some friends and we were talking and you know what? One of the guys said, you would really be good at being a, an apostle. And then I went home and my mom and dad were sitting there and even though they're Jewish, 
uh, and uh, living by uh, the old way of the law and not believing in Christianity, they would say, you know, son, you're a pretty good rabbi, you're a pretty good Pharisee, but you know what? You would make a good apostle in this sect called Christianity. Go do that. Or maybe he got done and he was sharing the faith and, and someone said, man, I know they already had some apostles, but you would make a good one. No, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul says, I've been called by Jesus Christ. What that means is God brought Paul to become an apostle. He moved him. Now, when did that take place and why did that take place? The scripture tells us in the salutations that are given, because Paul speaks of this word called in the Greek. It means literally kletos. And it has important implications. Listen to what he says. He says, I was brought to an, as an apostle by the command of God. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.1 says, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God. It's done by the will of God. Second Timothy 1.1, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Why is he an apostle? He's an apostle to serve other Christians. Paul, the servant in Titus 1.1, of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect. And the knowledge of truth that leads to godliness. Well, who sent him? Galatians 1.1 says, I'm an apostle sent by God. When did it happen? Did it happen on the road to Damascus? Did it happen in Jerusalem when he hung out with the other apostles? Did it happen in his teenage years? This is what it says in Galatians 1.15 and 16. But when God, who sent me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. He says, I did not consult any man. When did it happen? Before his birth. At birth, he was called to be an apostle. Paul didn't just decide to get into ministry. I, w- I want you to understand something. What, what I've learned is, in my short time on this earth, is that God calls people to ministry. We know we're called to salvation before the foundations of the world, the Scripture tells us. We know that we're called to ministry. God calls us. We don't just sit there and say, I think I'm going to do some small group uh, ministry maybe. It looks like how I'll do it. As if we look at a menu like we may do today as we go out to eat. We look at a menu and say, I'm not in the mood for chicken today. I'm in the mood for steak. I'm not in the mood to preach, but I'm in the mood to sing. God calls us. How does he do that? I've told you that the intersection of God's will in your life is what you see as the world's greatest need and your greatest giftedness. You want to see what's going on in the world and you're aggravated by what you see? One of the biggest struggles I have in America right now is the lack of biblical preaching in this world. And I look at that and I say, that's the world's biggest need. We need men who will proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and proclaim it without apology. That's the need. What's my, I got a big mouth. I've got a loud mouth. And I've got a heart to study God's Word. Did that come from me? No, God created that in me. And it's not that He just created that, but He created giftedness. He's given given me creativity. He's given me the ability to do that. That's no different with Paul or me or you. We saw the worship team up here. They didn't decide one day, well, I'm going to learn how to play the piano so I can serve God. That's not... God gifted them and gave them a talent and they've worked at it. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians that we are to give ourselves wholly to the work of the Lord. Looking at the world's greatest need and seeing how God has gifted us in that way. Who are you serving this morning? Are you serving self? Because you like it? Maybe that job or that thing gives you a lot of, um, a lot of praise. It gives you a lot of uh, admiration. It gives you a lot of accolades. Or do you say, I'm called by Christ and Him alone? Well, it involves a second thing. 
And that is the submission involves God changing you. It involves God changing you. Paul was called at birth. And we know that God calls us as well to these things. In fact, in, uh, in the text, we see that God is going to change Paul. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, I'm going to be doing a study, whether it doesn't, you know, I, I put that this was going to be an eight-week study out of Romans. It's taken us two weeks to get out of verse 1. We may not get out of Romans 1 in eight weeks. But after that, I'm looking at focusing again on the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. And the series is entitled Change. And there are eight things that I see in Acts chapter 9 that from when, when Saul was Saul the Pharisee to the Damascus Road experience to what Paul became, there are eight changes in Paul's life. Eight things that change. When God called Paul, he wasn't ready to serve. As I look back and I, I see where I'm at today, uh, proclaiming God's word in, in, in a public venue like a church, I sit there and say, when did it happen? How did it happen? And I learn as I look at my life, God was not only called me long ago, but he's been changing me. Remember that big mouth thing? Remember that loud mouth? Those are issues that I constantly have to battle with. Because the greatest thing that I have as a tool is my mouth. And I will tell you, ask my wife and my closest friends, that is the thing that gets me into most trouble in my life. Because I think I want to be funny. I think I just, just say this, I'll just say that. And, and what happens? Your greatest strength becomes your greatest weakness. So what does God do? He says, I'm going to refine you. I'm going to change you. We sang last yesterday at the men's breakfast, refiner's fire. God is in the business of refining you. If you're sitting there today and saying, I'm okay, everything's great, nothing's wrong, then I will tell you something. You're professing some wrong things then because God is in the business of refining. And what you need to be saying is, is when God says, hey, this needs to change, that needs to change. You need, to, you need to feel the weight of that and say, yes, Lord, I want to change that. I want to be more like you. Jesus Christ is in the process of making people like himself. It's God calling you. It's God changing you. It's finally God commissioning you. He says, I'm an apostle. An apostle, this is uh, a certain office. Only a dozen or so now. Uh, we've got uh, 12 that walked with Jesus. We've got Matthias who was added in Acts chapter 1. And we've got the Apostle Paul. Fourteen men have served as apostles. Paul says, I'm one of them. What was the criteria? Criteria in Acts chapter 1 was that you had to have walked with Jesus when he was on earth. You had to have seen the risen Christ. And you had to have been appointed by Christ. Now, Matthias, it's a little shaky on that because the Bible says that they cast lots. But they cast lots uh, praying that God would uh, reveal himself in those uh, casting of lots for Matthias. God had to appoint. We know that all of those are true for Paul. But not only that, but the book of Acts tells us that the criteria for an apostle are signs, give, sign gifts, and wonders. And we know that Peter and John, we saw them perform miracles. We saw Paul perform miracles as well. But what does it mean to be an apostle? In the Greek, it literally means one who is sent. One who is sent. Paul says, I, Paul, am a slave to Christ Jesus, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be one who is sent. That's what he's saying. Called to be one who is sent. What it means, literally, uh, another part of the definition of be an apostle, is to be one who proclaims, one who is an emissary or an ambassador. Now, we need to understand in first century time, when Paul says, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, I'm one who is sent, 
The idea in Romans 1, in first century Rome, was that a king did not have a television station where he would get on and address the nation or the Roman Empire. So what he would do is he would issue a decree in his throne room, he would stamp it, and he would give it to a group of men who were couriers who would go into different towns and provinces, and let's say that the king says, I don't want anybody to take their shoes off on Sunday. These guys would run around and the uh, courier would come in uh, in the Sugar Grove and he would announce, the king says, no taking off of shoes on Sunday. Did you hear that? The king said, don't take your shoes off on Sunday. And he would announce that to everybody. Why? Because the king had a message. What is Paul saying? Paul says, I am a one who is called sent out to proclaim. I'm a herald. You know, God has commissioned not us to be apostles. If anybody tells you they're, they're an apostle, you need to first check their temperature, and then you need to get them some help. They're not apostles in the form that we see the apostles in the New Testament. The Bible tells us that they were men who built upon the foundation of Christ, and they were foundational men for Christianity. Those are the men, the twelve disciples, Matthias, and the apostle Paul. But what are we? Acts chapter 2 says... We are to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. What are they teaching? Proclaim Christ. So when we go into our workplace, we announce, Hey, workplace, Jesus Christ has sent me to tell you that He's died on the cross to make way for sinners to be saved by grace. We're to announce that. We're to proclaim that. We're to do it in the spirit of an ambassador. Why? Because when, when a man would go out from the king, sometimes he would go to a foreign land. And what was he doing? He was representing a king who was far off. He was representing that king to a, another king or another people who did not know them to be king. What are we called to do? We take a message from our king in heaven and we go and announce it to the world. And we say, you don't know our king, but I'm going to be an ambassador. I'm going to tell you about him and what He says, God has commissioned us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at what he says uh, here at the last part. We see one final thing, and that is the final attribute of a Christian is one who is set apart to proclaim that message of hope. Paul finishes the phrase, set apart for the gospel of God. This is crucial. If we want to be true to our mission, we must serve our master. If we want to be serving our master right, we need to be called to a specific purpose. If we want to serve our master, be called to a specific purpose, then something needs to change in who we are. We need to be set apart. The word set apart literally is the word aphorizo in the Greek. And the word aphorizo means to mark out boundaries. It means to set apart or separate for a certain purpose or plan. What that means is is that Paul had to be different. God called Israel to be different in Leviticus 20, verse 26. You are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy. 